Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. You know Dr. Henry Lee's name. The world-renowned forensic scientist has investigated famous crimes around the globe and has testified in major trials like the O.J. Simpson case. But did you know Dr. Lee started his forensics career in Connecticut? Over the last 40 years, he's held many leadership roles that include state chief criminalist to the head of Connecticut's Department of Public Safety. It's his work that led to the development of the State Police Forensic Science Laboratory. And today there is a Henry C. Lee College of Criminal Justice and Forensic Science at University of New Haven, where Dr. Lee is still a faculty member. Dr. Henry Lee is now in studio with us. Welcome to where we live. Yeah, thank you very much. Hello, how is everybody? <laughs> so I understand uh, we're, we're so familiar with your name and the work that you've done over the years, but I don't think a lot of people know your personal story. So if we could start there, tell us about where you were born and uh, you know how you ended up in Connecticut. Good. That's a long story. Uh, I was born in 1938, a long, long time ago in a small city called Rugao in China. I was born in a very rich family. My father is a businessman and uh, owns a lot of property. But during the revolution, we lost everything. My mother took uh, most of the siblings, went to Taiwan. So I grew up in Taiwan. Mm. In 1949, when my father left China, uh, the ship sunk. So when I was eight, nine years old, I lost the father. So I was growing up in a single parent's family. Luckily, I have a good mother. She sacrificed herself, raised all 13 kids, make sure each of us finish our terminal degree and be a good citizen, have a good profession. I often say three women changed my life. The first one, of course, is my mother. Uh, she raised me for 20 years, educated me, take care of me. Then in 1963, I got married. Uh, Margaret, a lot of people know about her because she's a wonderful wife, took care of me 57 years. We dated three years, so together, two of us, Spent 60 years together. Uh, unfortunately, a year and a half ago, she passed away. So I feel really lonely and empty. Now the third woman showed up in my life, Angel. She promised me to take care of me another 20 years. So I'm a really lucky man. Dr. Lee recently married Chinese entrepreneur Zhang Xiaoping in a ceremony this month in Litchfield, Connecticut. After talking about these pivotal women in his life, Lee shared with me what led him to become a police officer back in Taiwan. So while, when we went to Taiwan, that time because family 
by very rich become very poor. The college tuition pretty expensive, so I took the exam of Police University, that time called Central Police College. In Taiwan, there are a couple university college free. One of them is police college, so I become a police officer. What was that like to be part of the? Was it the Taipei Police Force? Yeah. Uh, it's interesting. You know, a lot of people now, a lot of author, movie producer, a lot of public even think, when I was young, I want to become a good investigator. I want to become a police officer. But yeah, let me tell you, when I was in high school, I want to become a basketball player. <laughs> Every day I practice. I'm sure, but I'm pretty quick. One day the coach tell me, Sam, when you grow another two feet, you will be a star. <laughs> oh, I took literally every night, tried to exercise, and hopefully squeeze a couple more inches out of me. And one night I realized that's an impossible dream. So many years later, Yao Ming invited us for dinner. <laughs> I look at him, then I realize why I cannot become a basketball <laughs> star. Each of us have a limitation. I often tell my students, or the high school students when I talk to them, know your limitation. Be honest with yourself. Then strive for the best. I entered the police college. I found an area I really like. Each of us have a lot of potential. You have to explore and what you like the most. So what year was this? And when we think about how um, crimes are investigated back when you were a police officer in Taipei, um, what was that like? Uh, what did they use to investigate crime? What are the basic things that uh, uh, they tried to discover? Well, in the 60s, around the globe, everybody used the same technology called interrogation. In a city or small village, you know who is a stranger, who is a, uh, a troublemaker. So any case happen, you already lock the suspect up in your mind. And also early days, the homicide, victim and suspect usually know each other. Almost 95% of the time is family member, husband, wife, friends boyfriend, girlfriend, or business associate. So the investigation pretty easy to focus. Once you have potential suspect, just arrest them until they confess. So our clearance rate usually 150%. We saw more cases than actual cases because sometimes the innocent people cannot understand the interrogation technique, they confess. So most of the cases is confession. Then I realize that's not the correct way. Sometimes the innocent people was forced into confession. So I start getting interested in the scientific way Forensic to solve science. the crime. I, in Taiwan, I start learning, and I'm really lucky, learned by excellent fingerprint professor, and uh, so I learned the crime scene technology. However, that time in Taiwan, really no advanced forensic training. So in 1965, I come to United States. 
This is where we live. I'm talking with Dr. Henry Lee, the world-renowned forensic scientist who developed groundbreaking scientific techniques. He's joining us today to talk about his life and career long before he became involved in celebrity criminal cases. So I initially studied at the City College. You have a, a community college. Emma entered John Jay. They just formed a forensic program. So that started my studying forensic. After graduating from John Jay, I want to pursue my master and a PhD. By that time, I was really lucky. My sister, Sylvia, Dr. Sylvia Lee Wong, she gave me a lot of good advice. So I worked at the NYU Medical Center as a technician. So I got the tuition free to start my master's degree in biochemistry, and finally I finished my PhD in 1975 in molecular biology. So the day I got my finish my doctor's degree, I want to do what I really want. Of course, my professor, many of them suggest me I'm a good biochemist, just stay in biochemistry field. But my true love is to use scientific evidence to solve the crime. University of New Haven gave me an opportunity in 1975. They offered me assistant professor in forensic science. That time, the program very small. No equipment, no laboratory. At the same time, I have an offer from Michigan State. I have an offer from Berkeley. Berkeley have a, a school of criminology. That's the most prestigious forensic program in the world. I choose to join University of New Haven. That gave me a platform. I can build something. Mm. Uh, with the assistant of a university, of course, a lot of students. They really good group of students helped me out. We have a room about this size. We renovate. We got, I got the grant. National Science Foundation gave me a grant to buy a polygraph, the first polygraph in a, ever. So we modified this small, like a closet, become a polygraph room. Then we got more grants, uh, bought new IR, UV, spectrophotometer, and we start introduce serology, forensic serology. That time one of uh, another professor, he was my former professor in John Jay, I hired him, join UNH, Dr. Gensley. Two of us developed a, new, a lot of new procedures on ABO typing, bone typing, extract DNA, from tissue, from bone fragment. So we published a lot of paper, the program, also get a lot of grants. A lot of students now become famous and eventually become you know, one of the top programs in the country. Uh, so you were able to start this forensic science program at UNH, uh, and now we have you have an institute named after yourself, uh, both undergrad and graduate students uh, heading to UNH uh, to learn about uh, criminal justice, forensic science, and other uh, specialties. Uh, but I wanted to back up a little bit because sure. uh, there's that phase, uh, that time in your life between 1965 and 1975 <laughs> when you were working hard uh, to get your um, your degrees. But I was wondering what your life was like as a new immigrant, you and your wife moving here. How did people perceive you? 
Well, just like any new immigrant, this country probably the best country. If you try hard, you have an opportunity. But on the other hand, this country is a very competitive, and uh, as a minority, you have to double-proof yourself. Because early days in forensic view, predominate are Caucasian male. Very few females, no minorities. I probably the first one break into the forensic view. Uh, I still remember when I applied membership of Academy of Forensic Science. The first time they reject me, say I have foreign training, uh, my experiences from foreign country. I said, why you guys proclaim your international association? <laughs> so they took me in as a uh, provisional member. But quickly, in three years later, they honored me with a Distinguished Criminalist Award. Uh, it shows, you know, uh, forensic scientists have an open mind, uh, accept the colleague. And on now, of course, in the academy, we have a lot of female. Oh, as a matter of fact, uh, forensic science program, I often say, where's all the men? Because more and more the female scientists, they took over the forensic field. Hmm. Also have a lot of minority join the forensic science field. So this country, actually, I think, if you can prove yourself, work hard enough, you can make your career. So during 65, 75, I really worked hard. That time I lived in New York. I have three jobs. Work at NYU hospital, uh, Medical Center as a technician. I work in a restaurant, lunchtime, dinner time, wait on table to make some money to pay the tuition to support the family. Weekend, I teach karate and kung fu <laughs> because that time I have two kids now. And... Uh, Four of us, although we're poor, living in a small apartment, but we're happy. Uh, even my kids, they still remember early days. We spent a lot of quality time together. Like weekend nights, I have to do research. I often take my kids with me. So weekend, they can sit on my lap bench, uh, help out, wash the test tube, I give them 50 cents as they're spending money and uh, watch them to do their homework. Meanwhile, I'm doing my work. So then uh, in the evening, we take them to park, walk around, and get home. It's really a wonderful time. Yeah. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. I'm speaking with Dr. Henry C. Lee, a renowned forensic scientist who started his career right here in Connecticut. Coming up, we'll learn more about how he became a key witness in Connecticut criminal cases, including the infamous Woodchipper case in 1986. Remember the movie Fargo? Well, that case helped inspire the film. More after the break, and you can join us too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. My guest today is Dr. Henry C. Lee, a world-renowned forensic scientist and professor at the University of New Haven, where there's the Henry C. Lee College of Criminal Justice and Forensic Science. Dr. Lee has been a well-known figure in Connecticut courtrooms for decades. His expertise led to high-profile work investigating famous crimes, from the O.J. Simpson trial to investigating the murder of child beauty queen Jean-Benet Ramsey. Before Henry Lee became a household name, Dr. Lee was a little-known professor at University of New Haven. He says during the start of his career, he focused on getting the police, public defenders, and prosecutors to notice the value of his specialty, the emerging field of modern forensic science. You uh, started your career again, uh, really uh, started to build up this program at UNH. When did the state of Connecticut really start to pay attention to you, including Governor Ella Grasso? Yes. Uh, actually, when I first come to UNH 75, I set up a small laboratory. What I did one thing, I tried to start training for all the police department in the state, tried to teach them some more newer technology, especially with sexual assault. That time, a lot of sexual assault cases tried to develop a statewide rape kit collection. So the state, doesn't matter which department, state police, we should use the same rape kit, try to help the victim. Uh, quickly got the legislators, endorsement governor, so the first state rape kit was implemented, everybody using that, so we can look at the scientific evidence. The kits consist two parts. One part goes to forensic analysis. One part goes to a hospital to do the test, whether or not the infective disease or anything so can help the victim. Uh, of course, now the whole country thinks that's a good idea. Should uh, the whole world, everybody think uniform rape kit. So in 1976, I volunteered my service, but the first state agency took may in is public defender's office. Because early days, public defender's office, they don't have scientific services. Send an out-of-state private laboratory is expensive. So they come to University of New Haven. We help them examine the evidence. Judge DeMille, later uh, that time, he was a public defender in New Haven County. Judge Gill, Charlie Gill, precise my waiting. He went his first case. Uh, Judge Jogenis, that's the assistant uh, state attorney. Two of them argue a sexual assault case. Uh, but that time, the state really need the forensic services. So Governor Grasso invited me for lunch and uh, want me to become first state police laboratory director. But the salary is about one-third of the assistant professor at University of New Haven. Because at University of New Haven, I quickly move around the rank. In three years, I become a full professor. Also, we got a lot of grants, a lot of research projects going, a lot of good students work together. I have to give up on that, take the state offer. Why did you decide to do that? My mother talked me into. I have a good mother, my wife. They say, you have a dream to build one of the 
best forensic laboratory for state Connecticut, a model for the country, for the world. Why don't you do it? We can tighten our bill, eat less than uh, we never goes to show. I drive a little Honda, and uh, we live a small house in Orange. We are happy. Uh, my mother and my wife talked me into so take the challenge. Very lucky that Governor Grasso said, you can keep your teaching job. In the evening, I can teach. So in the state police lab, that town only have 17 troopers, two sergeant, one lieutenant. Most uh, are disabled or uh, so-called troublemaker. No place to assign to. Laboratory is a dump site. Uh, so antiquated. We work in a men's room. An old bathroom? An old bathroom in Bethany used to be the police academy. Uh, you talk about the early days. We don't have any equipment. The whole lab have two microscopes. But those troopers really good people. They did not give up on me. I did not give up on them. They all went back to UNH. I trained, retrained them. Some still in the field. And by 79, 80s, we got the break. We got the grants from federal. Then some insurance company uh, from Hartford. That time, a lot of arson case, fire. A lot of vacant buildings burned. And uh, the whole state, like every night, had fire case. So that time, the late state attorney, Arnold Marco, formed a arson task force. So we work on together, train a fireman, investigator, form a team with the police. Of course, laboratory component, very important. The insurance company founded the first state arson lab, bought the GC, bought the equipment. We start testing the uh, fire debris. And of course, the laboratory keep growing. We civilianized the laboratory. When a trooper retire, we replace a civilian. So a lot of uh, young women, young men with advanced degrees start joining the laboratory. So laboratory by 80s to 90s, rapid growth. And that, uh, and that was important to hire civilians to uh, uh, retain uh, that independency when yes. you think about investigations? Yes, very important is when you go to a crime scene, have to keep an open mind. So the laboratory is moved out of the state police under Department of Public Safety, become a division of scientific services. So we do variety of scientific services, including testing the lottery ticket, because at early days, uh, you have to assure the public the lottery ticket is no check and uh, no fraud. So each batch, we have to test first. One interesting case, a senior citizen bought an instant ticket. He scratched, usually instant ticket, only one price. Okay, you can only say $5 or $10 or $5,000 or 10000 Somehow, he got two price. Okay, so the Special Revenue said that's a fake one arrested. He said, I just bought this ticket. 
The ticket sent to the laboratory, we studied, that's a genuine ticket. Somehow the computer have a glitch, print a double whip in that ticket. So it wasn't all hair and blood. Oh, yeah, not all the hair and blood. <laughs> that senior citizen so happy. He's from New Britain area. He come to the lab crying. He said, I just bought a ticket. I bought a lot of tickets. Now, finally, I got the winning ticket. They want to arrest me. And uh, I want to thank you, Dr. Lee, mm-hmm. for sick really protect my mm-hmm. right. The most, <laughs> most interesting thing is um, some uh, old lady love Chinese food. They went to Chinese restaurant, bought some egg roll. Somehow, they fired a complaint to consumer protection. Say this egg roll tastes funny, like dog meat. So consumer protection sent an aging, bought a couple of egg rolls, egg rolls sent to the lab. So I, we developed a procedure, tried to take the meat out to do a species test. So one young lady in charge to do that. But for a couple of months, we don't have this, this type of case. All of a sudden, a case come in. She forgot how to do it. She keep following Dr. Lee. What was I was so busy. I said, just eat the damn egg roll. If you start meowing, that cat start barking. She took literally. She ate the egg roll sitting there. The supervisor walked by and said, what you doing? Dr. Lee tell me to eat the egg roll. It's almost 30 minutes. I haven't started barking yet. <laughs> he said, Dr. Lee tried to teach you a lesson. Next time, remember the yeah. procedure. So we have a lot of fun in yeah. the laboratory. This is where we live. I'm talking with Dr. Henry C. Lee, a forensic scientist whose expertise has led police departments, prosecutors, and attorneys to ask him to consult cases around the world. But the case that first brought attention to Dr. Lee was a Connecticut case. Listeners may be familiar with the infamous wood chipper scene from the 1996 movie Fargo. But did you know that part of the movie is actually based on a real murder that took place in Newtown in 1986? And a warning to our listeners, the next few details are a bit graphic. That November, Newtown resident Hella Crafts went missing. The police suspected her husband, Richard, but they had one problem. They couldn't find the body. With help from Dr. Lee and his forensics team, investigators eventually made a horrible discovery. Richard Crafts had murdered his wife and destroyed the evidence by cutting up the body with a chainsaw and putting the pieces through a wood chipper. This case... One by almost a uh, year, no progress. But her friend, her family keep begging the state to look into. Danbury State Attorney, that has uh, Walter Flanagan, he come to see me. Can we take the case over, help to investigate? So those cold cases, now at the University of New Haven, we have a national cold case center just helping the victim's family solve those cold cases. Homicide, the cleanse rate only about 75%, which means almost 30% of the homicide solved. Richard Kraft case, that's considered one of the cold case. So we review all the document. One thing stuck on my mind, a highway snow power worker give a statement saw somebody told a big worshiper. So we re-interview Mr. Hunsky, say 
this worshiper, I said, which direction? Lake Zor. Why somebody in the middle of a snowstorm tore a worshiper towards lake? Simple logic. We use deductive logic in that logic put together. We think Lake Zor is a potential area. Maybe the body in the lake. Send the diver. They did not find the body, but they found a chancel. They found a couple of bones. The bone we identify that's deer bones. Nothing to do with the case. The chancel, they said, Dr. Lee, should we keep the chancel? I said, yes, take the sand to the lab. Even today, a lot of people give me credit. How did you know keep the chancel? I often joking with them. I said, laboratory doesn't have a chancel. Somebody threw a chancel in the lake we can use. <laughs> when I took the lab, we found a serial number. I said, well, maybe we cannot solve a homicide, maybe solve a burglar case. Restore the serial number. Now, 30-some years later, I still remember the serial number, E5921616, the serial number. Called the company, sent a detective to New Jersey Distribution Center. They said, sent to Newtown, chainsaw store. Went to Newtown. The owner will ask him, do you have receipt? Yes, in a shoebox. So they seized the shoebox, the receipt people went through. We found Richard Crab charged that chancel. So that's the first break. Dr. Lee and his team used groundbreaking forensic tools to continue to investigate the murder. At one point, even running a frozen pig through a wood chipper to study how the pieces flew out of the machine. Then we start melting the snow inch by inch. The lake zore, the surface is pretty large, quite a few miles. So I said, okay, let's take a quick look, use logic again. This woodchipper, how far the debris came through. We repossessed the woodchipper, took it apart, and we test the woodchipper with pig, dressed the pig, so we know about 15 feet. So any place have a clearance of 15 feet, we start melting the snow. That took almost a month. We found 56 bone chips, 2,660 hairs, a fingernail, portion of toenail, some tissues, we start putting together. That time, the DNA only can tell male, female what was able to do DNA, that's probably the first case. DNA work shows that's a female remain. Then we did the ABO typing, shows that's Halicraft's blood type. We did a couple of isoenzymes, protein markers. And the hair, we used her hairbrush, turned out Halicraft, bleached the hair, re-dyed the hair. We got to the hairdresser, get a chemical bleaching and a dye made the comparison, and the fingernail is painted pink. So all those evidence start putting together. And I believe that was the first murder conviction uh, in the state of Connecticut where there wasn't a corpse. That probably in the world. That's uh, also used 14 area forensic expertise for anthropology to DNA together solve the case. 
This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. I'm talking with pioneering forensic scientist Dr. Henry Lee, who started out as a University of New Haven professor. He still teaches there today. Coming up, we'll learn more about how recent scientific advances have changed the field of forensics. And you can join us too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live, from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. The world watched Dr. Henry C. Lee on TV when he testified during the O.J. Simpson trial on behalf of the defendant, famously telling the court, there's something wrong here. But in addition to his testimony on famous cases, Dr. Lee has been a staple of forensic science in Connecticut for the past 40 years, from serving as the state's chief criminalist to helping found the state police forensic science lab. Dr. Lee is here with us to talk about his career. Uh, along the way, you've been talking about uh, different advances uh, in forensic science that have helped you and your team uh, do this work. And I'm wondering uh, today, uh, we don't, when we think about forensic standards and how they're developed, um, can you talk a little, walk us through a little bit of you know how these advances have come to be? And you know, are there issues where errors have been made? How do you then address that? Okay. Uh, first of all, it's not CSI. Okay, a lot of uh, young students want to major forensic. They think of our work like CSI. By second commercial, you have a clue. Third commercial, solve the case. Last episode, you're eating a fancy restaurant. You drive a fancy car. No, middle of the night, work or so hard. We can't even get the hamburger. And uh, it's all hard work. The forensic Technology because got a lot of uh, attention, so a lot of a new procedure implement. The laboratory get expanded, so the quality control become important. Future, of course, the more new technology is coming, because we now move from the agricultural society to commercial to industrial, to e-society. You don't even see your paycheck anymore. Mm -hmm. Just push the phone, you pay the bill, you order stuff. So a new breed of criminal, e-fraud, start coming. A lot of senior citizens, a lot of uh, young students got lost their life cost saving. So e-crime investigation is different than traditional forensic investigation. We start looking at the artificial intelligence. We look at the database. As a matter of fact, in Connecticut, in 90s, we already set up a database. For example, EFIS, Automated Fingerprint System, where the first one implement. DNA database. We have firearm, knifing database. We have few print databases. That time we even have a cigarette database. 
because everything future going to use database. But the problem is this quality standard become important. So in 1980s, the Crown Laboratory Directors Association, which I was a board member too, were already focused mm-hmm. on laboratory accreditation, laboratory standard. Those standard is important. However, have a problem with forensic work. Every case is a little bit different. You cannot really use one standard to take care of all the cases. Also, if you, everything just follow the standard procedure, you actually inhibit the laboratory scientists to think, to develop new procedure. If you push forensic back, become a technician, they just go 9 o'clock, go home, 4 o'clock, nobody care anymore. Like before, we work on weekend, we work on nights, no overtime. That's the pride of profession. With this, of course, you're going to have problem, arrows, just like hospital. Even the radio broadcast, sometimes you make a mistake. It's how we have the ethics standard. Unfortunately, because most of criminal civil cases, the lawyer want to win. So they try to find something. Innocent project is a wonderful project. However, not everybody is innocent. It's not up to me to judge somebody commit a crime or not. It's the court. Now they try to say everything should do DNA except the DNA too sensitive. For example, your studio. This is a magazine. If something unfortunate happened to me, you become a major suspect. You was arrested, but your lawyer said, do DNA on this magazine. Now you find somebody else's DNA. Aha, that's the real criminal's DNA. So you find a little DNA on some place, you say this person's innocent. It's a little stretch, but the, except the public doesn't understand. Ah, this person's foreign DNA was found, that's the real suspect. It's kind of to a point, I think we should refocus what forensic laboratory, forensic scientists, what really we can testify. Of course, some of the forensic scientists testify way beyond the science. One of the cases Dr. Lee was involved in years ago has now been appealed all the way to the Connecticut Supreme Court. Two men, Sean Henning and Ralph Birch, were convicted of murdering 65-year-old Everett Carr in 1985. Prosecutors relied on incriminating statements allegedly made to jailhouse informants. But attorneys for the men today say those statements are unreliable. And they point to a problem in Dr. Lee's original testimony as another reason why they believe the convicted men should get a new trial. Back in 1989, Dr. Lee said he tested a towel with a brown stain at the crime scene and found blood. But years later, the towel was tested again, and technicians concluded it wasn't blood. According to a Connecticut Mirror story, a state superior court judge found Lee's testimony was erroneous, saying, quote, Dr. Lee mistakenly but honestly believed he tested that item of evidence. The judge concluded Lee was not lying under oath.
I asked Dr. Lee whether he stands by his original testimony. Of course I stand by original. And uh, that towel, which have a few tests, so many 20, some 30 years later, you retest it. If this towel soak with blood, you don't have to be a genius. You can see it. If you do a few tests, usually it's very little, minute, tiny. We did not say that's the suspect's blood. We did not say it's his or nor say not his. Oh, but the advances in technology um, can be used to revisit old cases. Uh, if oh, there we is visit that. a lot of cold cases. We actually, in some project, before this start, we, Connecticut, if you look at the record, so many cases, potential suspect, police arrest, evidence exonerated. But those cases, nobody ever mentioned. Laboratory exonerated a lot of people. They only say laboratory convict people. Laboratory never convicts people. It's the core. We just testify. If the defense attorney did not ask you a question, or prosecutor ask you some question, we cannot even volunteer. They often say, just answer yes or no. Uh, we just have a couple minutes left, but I do have to bring up the OJ case yeah. because that really helped also uh, catapult your name uh, worldwide. Um, you got some criticism for uh, being involved uh, with that uh, uh, court uh, case against OJ Simpson on, the, uh, on behalf of the defense. Yeah. How do you respond to that criticism? Pretty simple. Nobody mentioned I also involved in Kennedy assassination, John Benet Renzi, and uh, Elizabeth Smart, all those cases. Everybody focus on O.J. Simpson case. O.J. Simpson case, when it happened, 80% Caucasian, he think he's guilty like hell. 80% of minorities think he's totally innocent. I often kid you, 100% Chinese, we don't care because I don't know who is O.J. Simpson. Our job, what the evidence says, I report it out. Public only read the news report. They did not know what's actually going on in the court. Just like that Connecticut case, same thing. They only said, Dr. Lee, make an error. If they really look at the case, where's the error come? O.J. Simpson case, you cannot only pick something in favor of your theory, ignore the rest evidence, throw in the carpet. So that's how this case gets into trouble. The jury is punished. The law enforcement police did not do their job, especially now. The new information come up, the potential second suspect. That time at the scene, we saw two type of shoe print, complete different shoe print. And they just ignore, say only one, the other one, I made a mistake, it's just bumps. Later, even FBI, fingerprint expert, that say that's a shoe print. But the newspaper did not report those. So people think I should take side for prosecution instead of to defend O.J. Simpson. Actually, I don't even know who's O.J. Every case, we just let the evidence 
speak for itself. Uh, Dr. Lee, we're almost out of time, but I, I do have to ask you, uh, what are you working on today and when you think about the future for your students? At yeah, UH? today we do a lot of uh, international training. For example, this year we have a drug-related death investigation. Do you know that every year this country about 70,000 people die drug-related overdoses, drug-related crime? More than that, car crashes now. More than homicide, more than car crash. It's a something we have to let the younger people know, living a healthy life. Uh, we do the police training, uh, how to involve one police shooting, like uh, last night, another shooting. So this country, we already have a lot of tension. We don't need more racial problem tension. Unfortunately, a white officer uh, descendant is a minority, automatically say this white officer is wrong or automatically say descendant is wrong. So we have to be fair, transparent, objective, investigate a case. Okay, so we're doing a lot of this type of training. We try to develop some new procedure. We also work on cold cases, uh, have an institute at the University of New Haven. It's separate from the academic program. We only do the professional training. So you're welcome or public welcome to come to see us to visit the Institute. It's a fascinating place. Well, it's certainly uh, very timely, especially this police-involved shooting incidents, looking at legal process, investigation, and yes. forensic evidence. Dr. Henry Lee, I could talk to you for hours, but yeah, we're out of time. Yeah, we can talk all day. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to see you again, to come to your show. Thank you very much, Dr. Henry C. Lee. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Today's show was produced by Carmen Baskoff. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. And coming up next week, we're going to take a look back on the most memorable Where We Live conversations of the year. On Monday, Connecticut residents often flock to the shoreline each summer, raising umbrellas and spreading towels along the state's beaches. Yet behind this sunny imagery hides a somber history, a history of coastal ownership and exclusivity. On the next Where We Live, Free the Beaches author Andrew Carl will join us. We'll learn about a 20th century campaign to unlock the state's privately owned coast. We'll also hear about a New Haven woman who was a pioneer in the civil rights movement. Have you heard of Judge Constance Baker Motley? We'll tell you more about her on the next Where We Live. You can learn more about the show at wmpr.org slash where we live. Have a great weekend.